<laughs> well, quite often when you say, you know, I'd love some feedback, what you mean is I would love some praise. Yes. <laughs> and yes. Uh, yes. anything less than this is a, you know, a, a heart-stopping work of genius is, is inadequate. It's hard. You know, really wants their book thrown across the room <laughs> because it sort of feels quite critical. But I'm pleased that it was a surprise. You yeah. know, I'm pleased and I'm pleased Did that, not see that, that coming at all. emotional effect. Writing sex is so difficult. There's even a bad yes. sex award, isn't there? Yes, there is. Well, I googled it. Uh, <laughs> Are you being serious? <laughs> no. No one was particularly <laughs> waiting for the third David Nichols novel. So uh, people were very relaxed about the delivery date and it meant that I could really polish it. And I, you know, it was very carefully planned because it was a sort of a jigsaw puzzle. I want them to get better. I'm coming out now as a Wuthering Heights hater. Not a hater. (laughs) (laughs) Someone who doesn't understand the appeal of Wuthering Heights. I love Jane Eyre and that book I just seems bizarre to me and not in a good way ready for another bestsellers i'm natalie jameson and i'm phil williams and for you this is episode three but for nat and me this was something we recorded nearly 12 months ago as a pilot with our guest today and it's been sat there and sat there and sat there. And that's how long, frankly, it's taken to get bestsellers up and running, isn't it? Yeah, it wasn't something that we just thought, oh, let's do this now. We've been trying to do this for months. Yeah. And then both of our works got in the way and life and other stuff. But we're doing it. It's all good. Yeah. So at the time that we recorded this episode in July 2019, you need to remember we were all allowed out. We could all hug each other. And we did this all singing, all dancing introduction for today's guest. So rather than repeat it... <laughs> So he is the very definition of a bestseller and is also a BAFTA award-winning screenwriter. He cut his teeth on cold feet, which I love, by the way. And you didn't kill off Rachel, did you? No, not guilty. (laughs) Uh, Before writing Starter for Ten, which was turned into a film with James McAvoy. His second novel, The Understudy, featured a Stephen McQueen, not that one, desperate for his big break in theatre, doing anything he can to unseat the lead. And then in 2009 came his biggest-selling novel to date, One Day. I am an unabashed fan of One Day. I don't mind saying with him sitting next to me. Uh, so ten years ago then, he introduced us to Dexter and Emma and how their lives intertwined, taking us to the 15th of July each year for 20 years. And it sold over five million copies. Next came Us, which is currently being adapted by the BBC. And it gives us great pleasure to tell you that here to discuss his latest novel, Sweet Sorrow, is the brilliant David Nichols. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm, yeah. I'm better for that introduction. That's very kind of you. <laughs> does it, does you. it work? Does it kind of build you up or are you like cringing inside? I get a little tight in my <laughs> neck muscles. No, no, it was very kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> when, we, um, when you come to do interviews like this, and obviously we'll focus on Sweet Sorrow in yeah. just a moment, but when you hear that back catalogue and it's your work, you've created all of that, how do you feel? Well, it's strange because you write those books at a particular time of your life and start of a 10 for me feels like a lifetime ago. And if, if I would sit down and write that story now, I'd write it very differently or I might not choose to write it. I probably wouldn't be able to write it. So it's rather like looking through a photo album and there's a certain amount of nostalgia and sometimes you look back at things and think, oh, well, not quite right. I wish I f- could fix that book. You know, I, I've never written anything that I wouldn't take off the shelf and rewrite and improve. Mm. But at the same time, just as when you look at a photo album and you look at 
what you were wearing, you think, what was I thinking? You have to accept that it's a, that's the biography of your work. You, you wrote those things at that time and you feel uh, complicated things about them. But generally speaking, I'm, I'm quite proud of them. You yeah. should be. Is that just about that thing of you wanting to rewrite them now? Is that just about maturing? Is that just about us all getting older? Or is that particularly prescient for writers? I think quite often it's a technical thing. You, 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 when I wrote Start of a Ten, I was very concerned that it would be funny. And so it's very crammed with gags. And if I were to write the same story now, I'd feel more confident about going for a page or two without being silly. When I wrote Start of a Ten, I'd really written only scripts. And in a script, you can't, you're not allowed to say what a character is thinking or feeling. You have to find a way to demonstrate it through action or dialogue. And so the best note I ever got from an editor I got for Start of a Ten, which was, it's okay. It's okay to say what people are thinking and and feeling. And so I I would probably go back and do another pass on it in that respect. Um, I think when I started writing Start of a Ten, I really loved the comedy of embarrassment. You know, I love people getting into scrapes and saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing. I think now I do that a little less and I'm inclined to do it less and less as I get older. I find embarrassment less funny than I used to. So um, I feel like I'm learning things as a novelist, which isn't the same as feeling that it's getting easier. It, it never really is, especially because I've always been very concerned to make each book different, for it to occupy a different world and a different set of characters. You know, I've, I'm sometimes find myself a little jealous of people who have returned to the same genre or the same, you know, the same detective, the same world mm. each time. With every book, I have to kind of rev up and find a whole different style and structure and, and setting and voice. And that's why I don't write very often. It takes a little while to find something that I'm happy to live with for two or three years. So Sweet Sorrow is David's latest novel. So something that we're going to do on the bestsellers pod for you is to ask all the authors that come on to read a short excerpt of their work for you because uh, we feel that it gives extra resonance to it and it's nice to hear it in the writer's voice. So um, from Sweet Sorrow, we're going to join this at the school disco. And I'm fairly certain, in fact, I can almost guarantee you, you will have attended a school disco like this. This is David Nichols reading from Sweet Sorrow. Grandmothers aside, I had kissed or been kissed twice before, though it might be more accurate to describe those events as facial collisions. The first occasion was in a darkened audiovisual exhibit on a history field trip to Roman remains. There's no reason why anyone should instinctively know how to kiss, like snowboarding or tap dancing it can't be learned from watching. But Becky Boyne had taken her instructions from Disney fairy tales, pursing her lips into a tight, dry bud that she tapped around my face like a bird getting nuts from a feeder. Films had also taught us with, that a kiss was not a kiss unless it made a noise, and so each point of contact was accompanied by a little lip-smacking sound as artificial as the clip-clop that represents a horse. Eyes open or closed, I kept them open in case of discovery or attack and read the wall display behind her. The Romans, I noted, had pioneered underfloor heating, and on it went, the tap-tap-tap becoming harder and more insistent, like someone trying to unblock a stapler. Kissing Sharon Finley, on the other hand, was an angry, open-mouthed, frenzied shark attack, both of us jammed down the back of a sofa. Harper had a den, a concrete bunker in the basement of his house that held a certain notoriety, and on Friday nights resembled the Playboy Mansion's fallout shelter. Here, Harper presided over exclusive, high-rolling DVD parties, doling out own brown lager spiked with soluble aspirin, the olive in our martini, to be drunk through a straw and potent enough to send us behind the sofa kissing amongst the dust balls and the dead flies. I had never been more aware that the tongue was a muscle, 
a powerful, skinless muscle like the arm of a starfish, and when my tongue tried to fight back against Sharon's, they had wrestled like drunks trying to squeeze past each other in a corridor. Whenever I tried to raise my head, it was ground back down into the dusty underlay with the same kind of force and motion required to juice a grapefruit. I retained a certain memory that when Sharon Findy belched, my cheeks puffed out, and when we finally pulled apart, she wiped her mouth along the entire length of her arm. The experience left me shaken and sore-jawed with two small rips in the corner of my mouth, a third in the root of my tongue, and nauseous too from what must conservatively have been half a pint of someone else's saliva. But I was also strangely excited, as if after some harrowing fairground ride, so that I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it again immediately or never again in my life. Uh, it's beautiful, it's funny, it's elegant, and if you go right to the end and the acknowledgements... Is pulp. Well, you can explain it, but first of all, you're called David, David's last summer. How much of this is about you at that age? And Oh, I wish it was more about me. I, I, I think novelists, me in particular, have a tendency to do two things. One is to imagine a past that was much, much better, more romantic, more exciting and fonder than the reality, and the other is to imagine... Catastrophes, you know, terrible, <laughs> terrible, terrible things happening. And the truth is, for me, is somewhere in the middle. You know, this is the novel is about um, a kid's summer, the summer of 97. Everything takes place between June and September. He's failed his GCSEs and he's desperate to fall in love. And he falls into this Amdram production of Romeo and Juliet and falls in love with Fran, who's playing Juliet. And none of that happened. At first start, I certainly wasn't 16 in 1997. I was 16 in <laughs> 1983. And right. I spent that summer in a coffee percolator factory. I didn't fall in love. I didn't do any plays. I didn't fall in with this great new group of friends. None of that happened. It was very... Did you fall in with the new romantics? Did you no, have to run and spam No, I was, a, I was a prog rock fan. I right. was listening to... Genesis albums on, on my Walkman at no. that stage. So Is that why you didn't fall in love? Uh, probably. <laughs> the two are not unconnected. So it was nothing like that. No, it's a kind of, not idealised because it's quite a painful summer for Charlie, but a melancholy, joyous, also traumatic time. And, um, you know, sometimes songs in a strange kind of way give you a way into a story. When I wrote One Day, a big part of the inspiration for that was a song by Billy Bragg called St. Swithin's Day, which wasn't just about this particular day, the 15th of July, but had, a, had a, a tone, a kind of sadness, a kind of yearning to it that was part of the novel, was something I wanted to transform into words. And with this novel, David's Last Summer is about sort of skinny dipping with your friends and drinking cider in the park and, and going to parties together and that terrible moment where you can feel the leaves start to turn and you realise the summer is coming to an end. I, I really wanted to find, capture that mood and distill it and put it on the page. Is Charlie's summer better than yours then at that age? Oh, much better, yeah. <laughs> I will no, actually not much better. I mean, he has quite a traumatic summer in terms of his relationship with his family and his father. His family are exploding. They're all heading off in different directions and his parents' marriage is falling apart and his father is in the grip of depression and his home life is very difficult. But he finds a relief and a, a release through meeting Fran, who he falls in love with, and through meeting this group of friends who are putting on this play. Do you think it's a common misconception that you're writing fiction, and you have been for a while, but people assume that these will be some kind of anecdotes from your own life, where yeah. you're kind of fed in little things, and they try and work out which things happened and which didn't? Quite often when you're talking about a book, especially if people haven't read the book, mm. then it's the best question. You know, it's the most pressing question. How much of this 
is autobiographical. It's the question I get asked the most. And I mean, I could turn the pages and say, this happened, this didn't happen, this happened, this didn't happen. Uh, most of it didn't, though. I'm very wary of putting real life people on the page. You, you can get in terrible trouble. And Have you done that before where you've put in something from your life? Like, in, why did I do that? Uh, in a very glancing way, yeah. Usually I'm pretty careful not to do that. If, I, if someone says something to me and I want to use it, I will ask them. If someone makes a joke, I'll credit them. But mostly it's made up. I mean, in this new book, there's a bit where Charlie and his friends all get together and they have this game, a silly game, where for a dare they eat all of the spices on the spice rack. Cinnamon! <laughs> one after another. <laughs> and, you know, we were so bored. We did that kind of thing all the time. I, I vividly remember knocking back a jar of uh, black peppercorns. And you know, it's what you do when you're 16. <laughs> there's another game they play where you get a dart. You all stand in a field and you get a dart and you throw it up in the air and you're not allowed to move or run or flinch. And... Stupid stuff like that, I did. And and I think that's okay. But yeah. the emotional story, you know, my father, uh, my parents didn't split up. I didn't do that play. I, there was no real life Fran. Mm. But you can't write anything that you haven't thought or felt. You know, you're just shaping it and transforming it and putting it into a different story. The nicknames. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were talking about the games, mm. the nicknames. Yeah. Are they, again, did you make those up? Or I made those so up. So they're not based on any kids that you are no, looking but, about? No, because they're very of that moment, aren't they? Yeah. What isn't made up is we used to do this thing called jibbing, which was just teasing each other. And it was relentless and relentlessly cruel, actually. And I think it was very hard. If I have a regret about my childhood, it's the way that boys talk to each yeah, other. You yeah. know, we were incredibly cruel and we passed it off as banter, you know, yeah. as fondness, as a kind of weird, twisted kind of love. But... It was such a relief for me to get away from that and, and it sort of happened around about 16, 17 to get to sixth form college and realise that you could actually call someone by their the Christian name. name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that if someone got their hair cut, it wasn't necessarily a, an excuse to kind of tear them to pieces, that actually it was fine. You could say, you look nice. At school, particularly the later years of school with boys, it was pretty tough. I thought I think so. being British as well and being sarcastic, I'm naturally yeah. sarcastic. And again, I look back at some things that I've said and you think you're being funny and then you can kind of catch somebody's face and think, oh, no, they didn't think yeah. it was But did you do funny. the, the as, a, as a girl, did you do the nickname thing in the same way? Yeah, I had, I had so many nicknames when I was a kid. For yourself? No, that pe other people gave yeah, me, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that they weren't nice. They weren't particularly Are you going to share? <laughs> Uh, so my name is Natalie, and I'd be called Prattley okay. a lot. Uh, and also, I Could I think <laughs> I grew up in Oxfordshire, and I think I've always spoken like this, um, not knowing that I was going to go on once to be in radio. But um, when I was at junior school, in particular, people thought I talked really posh. Okay, so they called me Posh Nut, which right. stuck for a long time as well. And then I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, I don't want to put yeah. on a voice and pretend to be something else. This is this is how I speak. So, yes. I was uh, I was Windy Miller, and it's not it's not for a reason that you would think. Right? It's, it's nothing to do with flatulence. It's to do with that I was a bowler in the school cricket team. Okay, and being six foot four and having long arms, my arms would in the bowling action would perpetuate around like a window. Okay, I think that's and quite so, endearing. I'm, I, it was a great relief to get out of that. I think to stop talking like that, and you know that's sort of the journey that Charlie goes through as well. And does that make it autobiographical? Well, your hope is that it's sort of universal, that actually everyone has that experience. Everyone has that sense of friendship being slightly twisted and aggressive. And, and uh, do you road test that universality? We, we, regardless of what you're writing, no. will you phone someone and say, I've had this thing about how we used to give each other a hard time and call it banter. Did you do that? 
Do you actually test those uh, themes? No, no, not until it's all written down, really. And then I will, you know, if things don't make sense, if things aren't coming across, if people aren't, if there is a sense of recognition, you can tell that from your early readers. They'll say, we need a little bit less of this, <laughs> or this is strange. From hearing other interviews that you've done as well, I am always surprised, I suppose, by how self-deprecating you still are and how seemingly lacking in confidence of your uh-huh. own writing abilities yeah. you still seem to be. Do you think you have to be that way to write the way that you write and not let these things go to your head, or is it just a genuine... It's a genuine surprise that I'm doing it still, and and a sense of... Uh, I don't want to be pompous about it, but I am quite... I want them to get better. Yeah. And I do work really hard to make sure that every sentence is is right, that I'm not just doing it on autopilot, that actually everything is earned and as good as it can be. And when I started, my contract said that I would write a book a year. And between start of a 10 and the understudy, there was about 14 months, about 16 months. And between the understudy and one day, there was two or three years. And I sort of rushed the understudy. I'm fond of the understudy. I think it's a good book. But I realized at that point that I couldn't keep that up Mm -hmm. and that actually I'd need to be a bit more discerning and careful about what I published. So one day was I wrote the whole novel. I didn't show it to anyone. I printed it out and I wrote it out again. I didn't edit the original document. I typed a new novel, a new copy with the original by my side, just to make sure that every word was just right and that every line was right and that that it was as well written as it could possibly be. Because when you edit on the screen, you can quite often lull yourself. You sort of hypnotize yourself. You see it on the screen, looks great, and the font looks great, and you think, oh, this is a book, and you just sort of skim it. And actually being obliged to type it again meant that every word had a proper weight and was necessary. And But once you got into that process, was there a point where you were like, why did oh, I start? Why don't, why don't I just <laughs> copy and paste it? <laughs> no, I mean, it took... Well, the thing is, because you know, the understudy hadn't sold nearly as many copies as Start of a Ten, so no one was particularly <laughs> waiting for the third David Nichols novel. So uh, people were very relaxed about the delivery date, and it meant that I could really polish it and I you know it was very carefully planned because it was a sort of a jigsaw puzzle the time scheme and everything was rather tricky writing that was I found that level of care paid off you know it it felt better written than the first two and um, since then you know I've tried to exercise the same concentration on every page and to be quite tough about throwing things away after one day I wrote 30,000 words of a novel that I could have finished, you know, that that would have had a beginning, middle and end and and would have been published. But I I, um, gave it to my agent and we had a meeting. We decided to throw it away. And that was a year's work. Um, And and it shouldn't have been a year's work. I mean, the reason it was a year's work was because I wasn't enjoying writing it. It was a chore. And that also comes across on the page. If you're Mm -hmm. writing something that you're not happy to be telling then that will come across as well. So on that, how do you select which is the idea that you are willing to put two, three, however many years it might be? I have very few ideas. I mean, really very few original ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and if I have one, if I think, oh, that'll make a good story, then, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty possessive about it. Are you quite protective? Do you yeah. share it with anybody? Uh, I will mention it a couple of times, but it's dangerous because quite often people will go, oh, well, yeah, that could work. And you think, oh, no, maybe it's a terrible idea. You know, if I went up to someone and say I want to do a novel about a couple who fall in love on a production of Romeo and Juliet, there's a very good chance they might kind of roll their eyes or think, how's that going to work? I know in my mind how I can make it work. 
but you don't really want to see the skepticism in someone's eye. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I, I would be wary of writing a whole novel, of working on a novel for two or three years and not showing anyone at all. I mean, that, that could be a, a terrible surprise at the end of that process. <laughs> so I have people who I send chunks to. Self, you know, the things I send to them are as good as they can possibly be. They're not, it's not a scrapbook. Who are these people? Uh, are they nearest agent, and dearest? Uh, no, not my nearest and dearest. Because if it's bad, then that's embarrassing. You know, you don't want you don't want anyone you love to read your worst work. You've got a work in progress. So Hannah, my partner, does read yeah. uh, a draft, but it's not the first draft. That's so funny because again, I'm obviously nowhere in your league, but I'm I've written my debut novel as well, and people keep saying, "Oh, you know, what does your husband think?" And it's like he hasn't read it. Yeah, I've read him. He's read a couple of sections, but for a start, he doesn't read the type of book that I'm writing Mm -hmm. and also there's no filter obviously between us so I he won't be able to lie he'd be like yeah it's it's isn't that good though isn't that good yeah I'm I'm, I'm I will show my wife stuff that I've written because I know she will look me square in the eye and say it's shit Okay, and I don't trust anyone else to be that honest. But are you then fine just I'd to carry on living together? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I am because okay. I think she's done me a favour in okay. the long term because I'm not then offering that out to the wider really, world. Really, in it's that no moment, good. if like, yeah. if my husband says to me, "No, that bit That's that shit. is really crap," yeah. I'd be like, even if I knew it was rubbish, in that moment he would get the, okay, fine, f- okay, fine, fine. fine. I, yes. won't, I won't write. I won't write. <laughs> yeah. Are you the same? Well, quite often when you say, you know, I'd love some feedback, what you mean is I would love some praise. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah. anything less than this is a. You know, a, a heart-stopping work of genius is is <laughs> is inadequate because you're in the process and you've got to sit down at your desk the next day and do it again and again and again and again and you know you want encouragement, but I also do want to be saved from my mistakes and so I I have three or four readers who I trust a great deal and uh, who I do respond to, but what I also have I mean in, you asked about how do you decide if an idea is going to fly. You know, I don't sit down and write chapter one, you know, and it was a dark and whatever. I I have a scrapbook and I throw paragraphs, incidents, sketches, ideas, images into this document, which no one will ever see. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a completely free space and I don't need to be embarrassed by it. And I will fill that up over the course of, you know, a year or two. And if I, when I look back into this great bucket of stuff, I find things that I... I can read without feeling embarrassed, then quite often that will be the source of the book. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, This seems like an opportune time to give you some praise from one one of your uh, celebrity readers, if you like. We've got something for you from Aisling B. Oh, lovely. I loved it, I loved it, I loved it. Uh, Can I play one of the characters when it gets to be a film, David? Can one of them be Irish in the film version of it? God, what would I ask him about it that I would not be bored getting the same question if it was myself? The father and son... Have you read it? So the father and son connection. I loved how what starts off as maybe simple, like, oh, depressed dad, son. Actually, there's a real love there. And I like when when people who could be cartoons are display something more complex. And that, to me, is more... It's giving someone a chance. And I think we do that a lot in society. We, We reduce people to... Fabulous, bad, good, great, woke, blah, blah, whatever it is, rather than looking at someone with all of their complex bits. David, this is a really long question. Uh, what would I like? I, I'd like to know about his process, actually, about writing and how he, how he brings a book together. And is it always the same? Or is he one of those disciplined Roald Dahl people like nine to five? Or is it a, you know, how, what, what's, a, what's an author's process? I mean, that's a grand question, isn't it? So we did a bit of that with the scrapbook, didn't we? But in terms yeah. of the routine, perhaps. Then, could... Yes, so that goes on for a while. 
And then I will start it. Then I'll open another document, which is the good draft, which is the proper draft, and it'll always be the same document. And that I write chronologically. I, when I started, I used to write a very detailed, sometimes a 30 or 40 page document, which was a scene breakdown. Because when I worked on scripts, you had to do that. They wouldn't let you write the scripts until you had that stuff down. And I do that less now, but I do have it in my head. I have a pretty good idea of who everyone is and some biographical details and you know, have a similar approach to how an actor would approach it. You know, what do I look like? What do I like to listen to? What do I wear? You know, fill in that details either on the page or in my head. And not until a great deal of that work is done do I then actually just start writing the prose. And sometimes I'll refer back to the scrapbook and lift and drop something in. But um, after that point, it's pretty methodical. You know, I write, I go to an office every day. Um, I put on my internet blocker so that I can concentrate. <laughs> and I start writing at 8.30 and then I delete my internet blocker and I muck about and waste time. And <laughs> then I install it again and then I write until 12 and then I eat the same boring lunch and then I write a bit more. In the afternoons, I'm pretty useless, so I, I edit and I do emails and admin. But if you keep going, you know, if you write your 1,000 words or your 1,500 words Do you set day, those limits of, yeah. I, 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 sometimes you go in mm. and you delete 2,000 words and you've lost two days' work and that's fine. That's just part of it. But I just keep building it up and building it and building it. And, you know, what you'd have ideally, and this is always isn't, the ca isn't always the case, ideally you would have, you'd finish the thing and then you'd go away for six months or three months or whatever and then you'd pick it up and have another look and see if it felt fresh and you'd have a clearer eye. But the mechanics of publishing mean that it's quite rare to be able to do that, mm. to have that breathing time before you go back to do your revisions. But once I have a complete first draft, I'll send it to Johnny, my agent, and he'll give his thoughts. And then quite often there's quite a big rewrite. On this, actually, I send them the first half, and the story was told chronologically, which meant that the love story didn't happen until kind of 80, 90 pages in. Clearly, I could tell was an error. I just wanted it confirmed. <laughs> so Johnny said, you "Do you know, ever you, say that in your email? You're like, I think there might I be something a bit wrong." Know, yes, but, yeah. Okay. I mean, I used to be a script editor, so yeah. it used to be my job to look at a story and and say, "The second act is all over the place, and the ending doesn't work." And I still retain enough of that technical skill to be able to apply it to my own work. And of course, I'm not as objective as I used to be as a script editor, but I can tell if something's a bit baggy. I can tell if a story doesn't make sense. I can tell if there's too much of something or not enough of something. But I need to have it confirmed. And once I've had it confirmed, then I roll my sleeves up and do the second draft. But the second draft and the final draft are pretty close. I will do a very careful line edit. And if I get to paragraphs which I'm stuck on or which I've left for later and never got round to writing, then I know that there's something wrong either with the story or the situation at that point. And if I'm really stuck on something, I will also change to pen and write by hand for a little while just to... There's something more immediate about it. It feels less fixed. It doesn't look like a printed book, so you're reading the words rather than looking at this lovely image on the screen and... That can sometimes loosen me up a bit. Do you know when to stop of a day as well? So can you be like, yeah, actually, I've got to put the kids to bed or whatever, so I need to stop? Or yeah. are you quite... I don't write any, I okay. don't write at night. No, I'm pretty... I never wanted to live in one of those houses where, you know, the kids weren't allowed to make noise. So I... Daddy's I writing. Yeah. Leave me to my muse. Uh, I can't do that. And so I, I go somewhere else and I treat it like a nine to five. 
because I write scripts as well, you know, quite often that intrudes. But I can't, writing a script is so different from writing fiction that I can alternate between the two. Writing a script is much more technical and collaborative. So um, there are meetings and there are sessions where really you're just sort of cutting and pasting and moving things around. And that's very different from the business of actually writing prose. I feel, do you, that we know David well enough now to talk about sex? Can we talk oh, about okay. Yeah, Goodness. so what okay. we... I still get like a little bit... <laughs> Do you still get a bit tense? Yeah, I know you want to say the word. So the, so the, the reason so I mentioned British. it is because Natalie and I were speaking beforehand about how funny the sex scenes are in this book. Okay, yeah. And, there, uh, you know, I kind of don't want to missell the book. It's not full of sex scenes. But the, there's one key encounter, a couple of key encounters, aren't there, with, with yeah. Fran and Charlie. And, and that's um, not a spoiler either. It's a love story. No, and no, you kind of, there's an inevitability. And... and they're hilarious. The reason they're hilarious, I felt, is because they're born out of truth. And as I'm reading it, these passages, I'm trying to think back to when I was that age yeah. and what I was up to and the quest to kind of furtively buy condoms and that kind yeah. of thing that you've... Yes. And so what I wanted to know from you, whilst Natalie blushes in the corner, <laughs> is how difficult, first of all, it was for you to recall that and then how do you know that you've got it right? Because writing sex is so difficult. There's so even difficult. a bad yes. sex award, isn't there? Yes, there is. Well, I Googled it. Uh, <laughs> Are you being serious? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> what is sex? <laughs> no, I, I tell you what, it, I, I, um, Emma and Dexter in one day, they, they never really have sex. They, you know, they never write about it. And I never write about it. There's no scene. And Us was about a troubled marriage, and so it didn't really ever seem appropriate. And one of the reviews for Us said, um, you don't really turn to David Nichols for the sex. And I thought, OK, well, maybe... Well, you, you might do, actually. <laughs> well, Thank you very we'll much. We'll see about that. And I thought, well, maybe with this one, you know, it's about 16-year-olds, and there's a sequence where he loses his virginity. I'm going to have to actually write about it. But you have... There are several problems. The first is a technical problem to do with point of view. You know, it's written in the first person. And quite often, the first person novel is like talking to someone, you know, it's like someone telling you a story. And it would be very strange if that person suddenly started being incredibly explicit or using a certain vocabulary. It's a big change of gear. So in Us, for instance, because it was narrated by a rather stuffy middle-aged man, it would have been bizarre for him to start describing his sex life. So it felt appropriate to leave it out. With this book, it was a little harder because, you know, it was all about the confusion and the excitement of being 16. You have to tackle that. But I think there is some writing about sex, but there's no erotic writing. Mm. You know, he's he's very honest about how when you're 16, you know, the recurring line is he doesn't know what to do with his hands. He doesn't, <laughs> it seems incredibly complicated and self-conscious. And, and there's nothing on the page which is meant to be, you know, sexy. No. But there's a difference between that and being frank about it. And I hope that it strikes the right balance, you know, that it it is a realistic, description of the encounter without being something that makes you feel either icky or sexy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, when you talk about hands and you write here that hands, this is at a school disco very early yeah. on, hands plunged in each other's waistband as if pulling tickets for a raffle. It's a brilliant analogy <laughs> of yeah. that kind of 
What do we do? What's, yeah. what's the? Yeah. It's almost like a really badly choreographed dance, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And well, if you touch yeah. that bit, I'll do this bit, and then where do we lie? And oh, hang on, and my arms yeah. are dead, and all this. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, well, trying I'm, to convey that on the page is tricky. I, I think there are writers who do it really, really well, and are completely, you know, frank about it. You, you, you can write about someone eating. Why wouldn't you write about someone having sex? Mm. But because it's really weird. Well, it, it <laughs> is weird. It is weird in certain <laughs> novels. Yeah, it is. It, yeah. it, I mean, in first-person novels, it's strange. Yeah. And but it's also, not weird in this, Nat, no? No, it's no, not. I no, and no, I really um, I enjoyed that it's section. It's warm. Yeah. Yeah. It's done with a huge degree of warmth, and it's funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think... Um, and then I nearly said, how did you pull that off and thought better? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I don't think I would write... I don't think I could set out to write something erotic. And I think also, you know, people always laugh about the Bad Sex Award. I hate the Bad Sex Award because it's... Writers are trying to do something that's so difficult... And the idea that you sit there at your typewriter and that there's a bunch of critics is going to laugh at you in six months' time is awful. It, is it seems awful. awful to me. And I always think that the joke of the Bad Sex Award really isn't that funny anymore. I wish they'd stop doing it because it's sneery and nasty and, and not that good a joke. I can live with the occasional overwritten sex scene it's not the worst thing that a writer can do I actually wanted to because I know that we can't keep you all day um, do you mind talking about one day briefly no no do never you, do you never do genuinely uh, uh, no no I don't I, I really don't I mean I'm, I, I, you know, the thing that's foremost in my mind is always the, the new thing but I'm very proud of one day and it was a, a great experience for me and it'd be very sullen for me to get all sulky about it <laughs> whenever it comes up no I'm very I, I'm very fond of it so and I'm talking of talk the uh, the unexpected um, obviously again I assume lots of people who are listening to this will have read one day but obviously there's a key scene where yeah. Emma dies very yeah. unexpectedly and just to let you know when I read that I was loving one day so much I can still picture myself in an old flat I was living in and uh, I read that scene and she died and I screamed no and flung the book across the bedroom yeah. yes. and my husband's like what What happened? I'm like ah! Like yeah, he, yeah she died! Um, yes. Does that, how does that make you feel as the writer that you had that reaction? Well, in I feel it's hard you know really wants their book thrown across the room <laughs> because it sort of it feels quite critical. But I'm pleased that it was a surprise. You yeah. know, I'm pleased and I'm pleased Did that, not see that, that coming had an at emotional all. effect. And um, I mean, we're well past the spoiler deadline now. So people do know it's in... I'd feel sad if it was the only thing that people remembered about the book because I always thought the book was about friendship and love and getting older and all of those it other is. things. And it, but But you also know that when you put in something like that, that it's going to have a reaction, and that's great. And it was probably one of the reasons for success, because yeah. people would talk about that bit. I suppose the thing I always feel a little defensive about was it as if I was sort of writing um, a love story and thought, oh, this is getting a bit boring, I'll kill one of the characters. Because the premise of the book, the original idea of the book, was completely built around that moment. You know, the book didn't make any sense to me without that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading, when I was 16 or 17, Tess of the Durbervilles, and there's an amazing passage in Tessa the Devils, where she looks in the mirror and she feels a shiver down her spine and, and she wonders if this is the day. Every year we have a birthday, but we have this other day, this mm-hmm. other anniversary. Looming. Yeah, we yeah. have our death day and we don't know when it is. And I thought that was an amazing idea at 16. I thought it was the most profound thing I'd ever read, that we live <laughs> every year through our death day. And then years later, I thought that maybe that would be a good premise for a novel to that write about. a really about. good premise. To write about someone's death day, but don't tell the reader. Yeah. 
And so, I don't think I knew that about One Day until now. Yeah. I, I don't know I mean, that the, you have the that. Test, the test is the passage from Test of yeah. the Devils is quoted, obviously afterwards, not before, because they would give it away. But um, <laughs> yeah, so the one day is the anniversary of this terrible event. And um, I like the idea that the reader was thinking, why the 15th of July? Why the 15th of July? Why the 15th of July? Oh, that's now why the 15th I get it. of July. Yeah. So um, it was always intrinsic to the structure of the story. And it wasn't a kind of um, manipulative or mawkish or maudlin twist. It was what the book was about. So it must be very strange then, because again, I know that lots, lots of people are like, would you have done a different ending? Why did you do it like yeah. that? And clearly there could never have been another no, way that no. was written. I mean, when it came out, I was aware that I didn't read any of it, but there was quite a lot of fan fiction where it didn't happen. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> you know, whether they kind of they yeah. just carried on in a perfectly nice relationship and had kids and whatever. So there are a lot of happily ever after remixes. Okay. And I love that idea as well, the idea that you can rewrite, that stories aren't fixed, that you can play with them. Someone came up to me once after a reading and said, I've got to thank you. This book has completely changed my girlfriend because she would never, ever, ever wear a bike helmet. And now she wears one all the time. And I thought, well, that's my my contribution to <laughs> that is, if you've done road one safety. Thing. <laughs> Amazing. Um, just to bring it back to Sweet Sorrow briefly, because I wanted to talk about, I don't know if this is just my own strangeness or if this is something you consciously put into all your books, but I could smell a lot of Sweet okay. Sorrow. Good. As in, I could smell Charlie's house with his dad and the takeaway containers and the kind of not being very well kept and what that meant. Yeah. And then uh, the scene we were just talking about where they have sex, I could smell where that happened. It was very musty and you yeah. had the candles and they had to do some cleaning. And when they're doing Amdram, it's outside and it's in the summer and I could smell like lawns and grass and yeah. everything. Is that something you feed into your books or am I just weird? No, I mean, I'm delighted it's there. I don't think it's, I don't do a sort of smell pass. I kind of, <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 you know, you hope that you evoke a kind of, you know, that you can yeah. evoke... Uh, places and of course that's often unconscious, but you want it to be on the page, and, and I'm I'm delighted to hear it. I mean, this book, I suppose, I'd never written. All of my previous books were city books. I'd mm. never really written about the British countryside, and 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 Charlie grows up in a, a suburban town that sort of has a ring road around it. But when he breaks out of the ring road, he goes into the heart of England, and a lot of the action takes place in meadows and fields and rivers and streams. And I. I wanted the book to have a kind of pastoral, lyrical feel that it would feel like lying in a summer meadow. So that was definitely part of the intention. And just to end on a couple of quick fire, if you don't mind, yeah. book questions. So, uh, David Nichols, is there a book that you remember the most from your own teenage years that you kind of clung on to and got you through? Uh, I always say um, Great Expectations. That was a big one for me. I, it was the first kind of classic that I read and I, I found myself identifying with it hugely and finding it very, very exciting and moving and um, emotional. And I, I love Dickens and gradually worked through all of those books. And Dickens was very, very important to me. And much like my extreme reaction to throwing one day across the room in, in a good intention. Yep. Is there a book that you've had an extreme reaction to, good or bad? There is. I'm so scared to say it, but I'm going to say it out loud. I think Wuthering Heights is a crazy book. I I think it's a silly book and I've read it three or four times I worked on a TV production of it so I, I read it over and over and again and I always thought this book is ridiculous and uh, I obviously didn't say that but I'm coming out now as a Wuthering Heights hater not a hater <laughs> <laughs> someone who doesn't understand the appeal of Wuthering Heights I love Jane Eyre and 
that book I just seems bizarre to me and yeah. not in a good way. I haven't read it. And I'm fine to say that. I know what it's about. I like the Kate Bush song. Yeah, but, but I think that's the thing. You think you know what it's about, yeah. but then that part of the story stops and there's another 300 pages that goes <laughs> yeah. on and on and on. It's a very strange book. And I understand why it's a very interesting book and a very key book and a, and a, and a, a fascinating book, but I just never made the connection with it. And just the very final thing, um, because we're about book recommendations as well, is there something you would recommend right now, something you might have read recently or you think that people maybe don't know about as enough that they should dive into? Well, I'm a big fan of um, uh, an American writer called Elizabeth Strout, who wrote a wonderful book called Olive Kittredge and many other wonderful books. And I think she's a fantastic writer and a, and a model for me in that she writes about ordinary lives but gives them real depth and emotion and I, and she has a beautiful prose style and I, I think she's a really fine writer and she's written a sequel to Olive Kittredge called Olive Again which I think will be out later in the year but but it's definitely worth exploring her backlist as well. I read the one, I can't remember the name of it now, Laura Linney was just in it Oh yes, I Am Lucy. I Am, Bar- yeah, yes yeah, that one. Yeah, that's good. Uh, she's a great writer I think. David, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So David Nichols' book recommendation was Olive Again by Elizabeth Strout. That's S-T-R-O-U-T. And it's the sequel to Olive Kitteridge. Uh, It came out in hardback last autumn and Kindle as well. And the paperback is due out this autumn in 2020. Uh, Also, if you want to do as David suggested, then his teenage favourite was uh, Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. And I've read some Dickens recently and actually I really enjoyed it. Didn't have the best time of it. Uh, when I was at school. But um, yeah, going back to it now, really easy to read and absolutely, of course, a bestseller. The wonderful David Nichols. And if you're listening, David, here we are. It's finally got to air. People have finally got to hear your interview. Really interesting bits in there, Nat, I thought. I mean, certainly one about how he hates the Bad Sex Award. I thought that was really interesting. The reasons why were interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And also I think... um, talking about Wuthering Heights as well. And that's kind of, you know, exactly what we want to get at with this podcast is that there's going to be some books that people like and some books that other people don't like. And it's all okay. You know, it's just read what you want to read and don't feel that everything should be judged by everybody else. Yeah. And the way that he recalls certain things from his life to incorporate into the book, I thought was really interesting as well. And also, we should say this about David Nichols which you will have noticed in lockdown, he's such a tremendous supporter of other writers, he isn't he? Yeah. Tweets, tweets about other books. I think he's been tweeting more than a book a day. He has. He's and, been doing um, kind of like virtual book launches for people. Yeah. And I think that's so generous. And there's no sharp elbows there whatsoever. The other thing I thought was interesting, and you'll face this when your debut is a massive hit, by the way, <laughs> is the bit when he said, um, after writing one day, I thought I might never write anything this good again. That would be a terrifying feeling, don't you think? Yeah, I I can absolutely, with all honesty, say I'm not at that point right now. (laughs) I'm hoping that I write things that are a lot better. uh, Yeah, A lot better than one day or a lot better than what you've already written? No, a lot better than what I've already written. I think one day is fantastic, even though I did throw it across the room. And you know when you're not quite sure if you're going to start on a story and I'm like, should I tell him that? But I think it's fine. I'm happy I told him. Do you throw many books across the room? I don't. Um, my husband. Because you know, when you told that story, it reminded me of Silver Linings Playbook, where he chucks the one out the window. Yeah, sometimes, like, um, if a book's really scary, my hu- my husband sometimes puts it in the freezer. 
So it's out of the way. Oh, he hides it from you? No, for himself. That's not for me. That's for him. He's put stuff in the freezer. Oh, if he's reading reading and he's scared. Yeah. Goes in the freezer. Puts it in the freezer. Yeah. To be honest, I think he was just copying Joey from Friends because there's an episode where Joey puts, is it Little Women? I think he puts in the freezer. But anyway. What effect does that have on the actual book? I don't know. I think it's just, it's just a way and can't, can't get to him, can't get to his brain at that point. But he's never forgotten about one and it's gone so. No, I don't think so. To be fair, he hasn't done that for years. He's probably going to hate that I'm saying it. But um, yeah, yeah, I think I am quite, uh, (laughs) when I am reading, I can be quite vocal. Um, uh, Again, my uh, obviously amazing, but long suffering husband, I'm at my worst when I read a sports biography, at which point I'll like stop it after every every story. And I'm like, did you know this happened? And then he's like, yes okay and then like each time I'm like <gasps> I do a lot of gasping and then he's like no okay you have what what tell me um and then I launch into the story and he just does it to humor me <laughs> so right but actually this story that's been massive in the tabloid sports sections at the time yeah no he probably won't have read that he's just like he's either like well I'm either going to read the book or I'm not or you've already told me all the best bits from it so um yeah. <laughs> you're like his own version of a serialization aren't you when it goes <laughs> yeah, five yeah. days across the newspaper I can do it just naturally it's quite a gift <laughs> And how many years have you been married now? Oh, we've been married. We haven't been married for that long. We've been together since I was 18, so it's a really long time. Wow, that's almost as long as you've been working on your edits. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> uh, we'd love to hear from you. The email address is bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. Bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. Drop us a line. We do read everything, but we can't promise to return your draw. That's not going to stick, is it? We're not going to keep saying <laughs> no, I'm not going to keep saying that. We need to say thanks to Alex Feldman from Pixie U for letting us use his studio to record this episode. But also, I think you should mention something about the music that people are hearing right now. Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad you're reminding me. Uh, because, yeah, so the theme that's underneath us now, if Natalie's done the edit right, <laughs> is... <laughs> composed by my brother i'm only laughing because i'm the terrible editor yeah we share edits by the way so yeah mine are much better yeah i (laughs) the software that we use right i did 20 years ago at radio one and i've just fallen out of practice and now it's like getting in the car and going hang on where's third so i'll I'll get there see if you can spot which ones i've edited and email us don't my ego can't take it (laughs) back to my brother my wonderful brother who has composed the theme music for us for bestsellers so the stuff that you hear at the beginning, the stuff here at the end, is my brother's own original composition. And if you like it and you would like him to compose you something for a similar thing or a project you're working on, again, you can drop us a line at bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com and I'll put you in touch with our kid. Done. Brilliant. Let's go read. Read. <laughs>